Hello, this is the My Possible Self podcast. I'm your host, Gabby, and whether you're here for the first time or you're a returning listener, thank you for showing up and setting aside some of your day to dive into topics within the mental health and wellness space. As by now, most of you will know, My Possible Self is the mental health and wellness app that is jam-packed with tools, techniques, and follow-along videos to help you better manage your mental well-being. Today on the pod, we are looking at how alcohol, when misused, can be detrimental to our mind and play havoc on our emotions. There are many long-term physical health risks associated with alcohol misuse. They include high blood pressure, stroke, liver disease, liver cancer and various other cancers, sexual problems and infertility. The misuse of alcohol can also lead to some pretty serious mental health problems such as anxiety, depression, dementia and alcohol dependence. So as well as having a significant impact on both your physical and mental health, alcohol misuse can also have long-term devastating personal ramifications such as family breakups and divorce, domestic abuse, financial problems, unemployment and homelessness. If you're listening to this episode around the time of its release, then you're in the first month of a new year. Perhaps you're one of the thousands taking part in Dry January, a public health campaign urging people to abstain from alcohol for the month of January. Dry January helps people to drink more healthily year round. Research conducted by the University of Sussex has found that six months after taking part in Dry January, more than 70% of people are still drinking more healthily. And before I go any further, I will say that if you are fond of the odd tipple, don't worry. No one is here to preach or condone. We just want to make sure you're being safe and responsible and mindful about how much you are putting away. Millie Gooch, founder of the Sober Girl Society, an online platform for sober, sober curious and mindful drinkers and author of the Sober Girl Society handbook is coming up to four years of sobriety. She joins me on this episode to share insight into living a life sober as a young adult. Millie's book does a brilliant job of dispelling a lot of the myths and excuses that surround turning to or turning away from the hooch. And that includes why we rely on bringing booze into the bedroom. So without further ado, let's proceed with Millie and the episode. I'm really psyched to talk to you. Loving the book. You just mentioned before we got going that it's a very busy time of year for you, Millie. So thank you for squeezing us in. Dry January 2022. Let's hope this year is um is a better one than the last day. Eh? Oh, that'd be nice. If we could leave it all behind in 2021, that would be great. Yeah. You've built up quite the career as the kind of sober guru, if you will, of like, you know, the Gen Z, the millennials, especially, you know, you work predominantly with females. But I I suppose just because I've brought the pandemic up from the get go, like that's been a time where people have really turned to alcohol. So on the flip side of that, have you found people have also turned to sobriety? 
Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So the stats are kind of showing that people have gone pretty much one of two ways, which is either that they've cut down on drinking because, you know, they might have traditionally been social drinkers, they didn't really drink much at home, and a lot of people have kind of used it as an opportunity to, you know, bin the booze, get healthy. And then you've got kind of the other side of it where people have really turned to drink. And I think Mm. we've also seen a bit of a trend. So like at the start of the pandemic, everyone kind of saw it as this, you know, booze up. Everyone was sharing memes about like stockpiling on wine. Everyone was like showing off their 4pm gins while they were at work (laughs) and talking about day drinking. And we were quite quiet on the platform for a while because I think everyone saw like lockdown as this like you know opportunity to party and day drink and get away with doing things while you were meant to be on zoom calls and yeah and then I think by the second lockdown I think people had realized that this wasn't sustainable mm-hmm. and I always say as well I don't know if you've ever been like on a night out and you've been quite drunk and you haven't realized how drunk you are until you go to the toilet and I think so many people have realized by sitting at home like the effect that alcohol actually has on them I think where they traditionally would have been out and in clubs and I think they, it's a lot more obvious to know how alcohol is affecting you. Like people were saying, oh, I started to feel groggy or I started to really notice the effect of my mental health. I think it's just people are more aware when they're doing it in like an isolated surroundings. So by the second lockdown, we had like a spike of people joining the platform that were like, you know, I kind of binged in first lockdown, didn't work out for me. And now it's second lockdown. I kind of want to like give it a go, maybe cut out. And, and so that was kind of the trajectory really. And I remember like the second lockdown we just boomed as a platform it just like kept going up and when we talk about the platform we're talking about the sober girls society and is it instagram is like the kind of hq of all things sober girls society yeah so instagram is kind of where it all started and that's kind of like the main platform that we're on yeah Uh, i mean we have a website as well with like thousands yeah. <laughs> it's it just like I at some point I'm like oh it's gonna die off and it just doesn't like the more this kind of sobriety conversation continues the more people take part in dry January I think it's it's just still kind of growing which is yeah I mean interesting well people like you as well are flying the flag for and we'll, we'll pick through a few of them in the book you know dispelling these myths that are associated with booze there's certainly for me some aha moments and I I I guess I did identify with your story in terms of I was a bit of a party girl for all of my 20s. I'll hold my hands up. And it kind of it did come part and parcel with with my job, being a a DJ and a dancer at that time as well and living in Ibiza. And, you know, it was just kind of the lifestyle. And for you, it was like, you know, you're a journalist, right? And um, yeah, I now I'm I I wouldn't say I'm completely sober. I'd say I'm like 99 percent sober. So I have. I can count on one hand the amount of times I've had a drink over the past two years. So I identified a lot with with your story, but there was also some moments where I was like, oh, that's such a good point. And that's just totally dispelled (laughs) something that I'd been carrying without even realising I'd been carrying. But before we get into that, just a little bit about you. And I know you've shared your story loads, so I'm sorry I'm going to make you do it again. But No, no, I don't. (laughs) In fact, actually, I was thinking, you know what, the way you write, it would make... You could do such a great YA book, like a fictional book, but based on your experience of this sort of like young journalist out partying, um, you know, or, you know, gets carried away, shall we say. It's the way you write. It's that sort of 
personable, relatable, funny. Yeah, it would make you, oh, you could do a killer YA. There's, I'm pitching you <laughs> your next book. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> but just, yeah, it, you know, you don't have to go into too much detail, but just sort of like, how did you get from A to B, from like party girl Millie to the Millie that I'm talking to today? Yeah, so I I would actually say I was a bit of a late bloomer because a lot of my friends were kind of like 14, you know, drinking white lightning down the park. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I was dancing, so I was like literally training all the time. Um, never really got into booze and then I am an August birthday so I'm like the youngest in my year pretty much so I turned 18 about three weeks before I went to uni literally turned 18 and then went off to like live on my own and I just went into this kind of like uni nightlife culture like full steam ahead and I think because I hadn't even had that year or any previous experience of drinking and the way that you're kind of like I say taught to drink at uni is very much binge drinking. Go hard or I go home. I never learned, yeah, go hard or go home. I never had any like experience of booze or trying to moderate it or drink sensibly or have a couple at a family party or I just went straight in, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it fully. Mm. So I started drinking at uni, you know, I worked in like a vodka revolutions, I worked in like a shop bar, I danced on tables and did everything and, and, and just went kind of full in. And at the same time, it was that real, like Geordie Shaw had kind of like just taken off and we used to like love it when we were at uni. It was like when it was really popular and you know, the girls would go out and it was kind of that like first time that you saw girls like going out, you know, like causing havoc, drinking as much as the boys. And we kind of really adopted that culture of like, you know, we don't give a shit kind of, we're just going to go out and, and get hammered. And then I left uni and I kind of noticed towards the end of like my third year that a lot of my friends had calmed down and I kind of hadn't. And I just, you know, loved going out all the time. Just that's all I wanted to do was go out. Um, and then I left uni, started working um, in, in like I did fashion PR festival, did a few internships and kind of worked in media. And, you know, some of the, the PR firms I, I worked for had like booze brands. They would have like Friday bar. And, you know, when you're an intern, there's different rules now. But when, when I was there, you didn't really get paid. You got some expenses. And, and so, you know, when someone offered you free booze, you were like, great, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Work hard, play hard mentality, which is in exactly. a lot of work environments. Yeah. And so then uh, kind of it started to take a bit of a turn. So, you know, I would like get the last train home. I was living in Kent, but working in London. So I'd get the last train home and I'd fall asleep and I'd end up in like Dover and I'd get like a £150 taxi home. So it was like before the days when Uber was really popular. And it just kind of started getting worse and worse. And I think something that I initially started doing because it was fun and because everyone else was doing it, then kind of turned into something I felt like I had to do for confidence and, you know, to make myself happy and to celebrate and it it kind of started as like something I just did because everyone else was and then all of a sudden it was like they'd stopped and they'd and I just carried on going so you know a lot of scarier things happened I started suffering really badly with blackouts like I would wake up not remember any of my night I would get that horrendous like beer fear anxiety I'd ring all my friends and say what did I do I'd like not remember how I get like got home I'd like wake up in places and be like where am I and it just started to get like steadily worse and then 
when I got to 26, I, I went through a really bad breakup and I did what all young women are told to do when they break up, which is, you know, go out, drink your weight in rosé. And, and that's exactly what I did for about three months. I just kind of like went out every weekend, like really partying. And I just really noticed the effect that it was having on my mental health. Like it, it wasn't helping. Everyone was saying, you know, like go out and make you feel better. And it was just making me feel worse. I was just waking up. I was depressed. I was anxious. I was miserable. But I was just in this like hamster wheel of like drinking at the weekend, feeling better by like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and then get to Thursday and I go, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out again. Yeah. And then um, just like did things that I didn't think aligned with like who I was as a person and like not not yeah. horrendous stuff, but just, you know, like causing arguments and being dramatic and yeah. ruining my friends' nights and things like that. And, and, and I think they were getting sick of it as well. So then I was on the tube to work one morning. I think it was like January 2018 and I read this article in Stylist by this woman called Catherine Gray who'd just written a book she was talking about a new book which is called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober and I read her story and I thought god that sounds like me so I took a picture of the page and then didn't really think anything of it and you know said I would I would read the book and just didn't and then it got to February 2018 I went on a night out with my friends and don't remember hardly any of it like went out was just like so so drunk got home like woke up next day was just mortified embarrassed just like felt really stupid so I was like oh I remembered the book so I thought okay I'm gonna download it on audible because I couldn't leave my bed because I was feeling so horrendous so I downloaded it and I listened to it and it just like changed my perspective on everything like I it sounds really silly but I'd never ever considered that you could just stop drinking like I always thought it was something that I had kind of like shoehorn into my life and make it work and try and moderate I never ever considered not drinking as like a thing I was like well unless I identify as this like rock bottom drinker it's fine I can keep it in my life we're unconsciously conditioned aren't we to believe that because everything you're saying is so relatable and I imagine quite a few people listening will be going either a yeah that's me or what's wrong with that that's normal yeah because that's what we're led to believe right yeah but like some of these expressions like anxiety beer fear booze blues they're all catchy phrases for actually real mental health illnesses anxiety depression panic disorder yeah like we know numbing pain with booze is bad why do we ignore everything Millie is it because of this it's normal to drink therefore you know I'm going to ignore the rest do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it's so socially accepted. And I think also, particularly in our culture, I think we have this real like self deprecating humour. And I used to do it like I'd wake up and I would be feeling so horrendous and so like ashamed. And then I'd text my friends and be like, oh, ha ha, like ruined my life again, didn't I? Like last night. And just kind of like batted it off. And everyone pretended that it was hilarious and I think deep down we all kind of knew that it wasn't but we would just laugh it off because that was like no one wanted to really admit that this was happening or we were feeling this way I think we the next day we laugh at people when like they get too drunk or they cry or and we don't actually think hang on this could be quite serious I think the other thing is like you know we're a highlight real culture of we only see the pictures of the night out when maybe you're having fun it looks like you're having a great time you're dancing no one's putting pictures up of them when they're like really hung over shaking having an existential crisis so we just kind of ignore that fact and I think you know my friends used to be like oh we're not that bad on a night out and I'd be like do you know what like 80% of it was fine the last like the last 10% of the night 
would be horrendous. And then like the next day, like that 10% that you didn't see was rock bottom for me. So you only saw like 90% of it really. And so I think that's like a big part as well. I think it's so many factors. I think like, you know, the way alcohol is portrayed in the media, the way we have this idea about, you know, you're either an alcoholic or you're not. There's no kind of like gray area. There's no room for actually it's negatively affecting your life. We think that the only people who have to stop drinking are people who want to identify as alcoholics. And yet we don't have the same with other drugs. You know, like if if I said, oh, you don't need to stop smoking yet because you haven't got cancer and your lung hasn't collapsed. So, you know, yeah. you're fine. Like yeah. it, it, it's so weird. And like everyone says as well that, you know, alcohol is the only drug that you have to justify not taking. If I said to you, oh, here's some cocaine and you said, no, I'm right, thank you. I'd be like, yeah, fair, fair enough. But with alcohol, there's instant pushback. Yeah, it, I've, I've certainly noticed myself it being pushed on me when I'm like, I'm all right. Oh, go on, go on. Or I don't think people think about it from the perspective of when they say, well, what's wrong with you? You're not normal yeah. or you're boring. I've been called that before as well. It was actually by my boss in Ibiza. <laughs> I remember I was like not drinking at this event. And um, she was like, oh, you're getting boring, Gabby. And I know there was no real malice meant behind it. Yeah. And maybe it was more about her than me. But, like, on the flip side, I think the reaction would be quite... I, don't, I Can you imagine saying to somebody, you're an alcoholic, you've got um, substance abuse, you know, all these different things that you could fire back which to them would be really hurtful and, and, and awful, but then we're supposed to take it if we're boring. <laughs> yeah, because we but don't I think what you said is right. Hurt ourselves. I think it's a reflection of them, and I know that because that was me. So I used to, you know, if someone said to me, I'm not drinking, I'd say, why, you're boring? And that was because I didn't want to be the only drunk one. I didn't want to be the only one embarrassing myself. I didn't want people to know how kind of like drunk mm. I was. So I thought, mm. well, if they're drunk as well, they won't notice. Mm. So, And is it about like a wavelength thing as well, that camaraderie of like being on, on a different keel because you're sozzled, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. There's also, it was a study, I'm probably going to butcher it, so I'm not going to say the exact thing, but that uh, I think it was with uni students and it was all about one of the reasons that they wanted like everyone drinking is because there was that like collective suffering the next day and that made people feel better that they, they saw it as like a bonding activity right um so they that was like one of their things and that's how they made friends they made friends through the collective suffering of hangovers wow our body's like really good at giving us cues as well like when we're doing something to hurt us you know like IBS, it means we, we need to look at our diet. But yeah, headaches, nausea, upset stomach, all the things that happen when we drink. Why do we turn this blind eye when we know it's bad for us? I think, again, it's that thing of like, we don't see that it's a problem because it's not like the problem that we talk about, that we just kind of like we don't want to face it and we don't want to acknowledge that it's a problem also because it plays such a big part in our culture and in our lives and you know we all strive to be like wanted and accepted and actually thinking about giving up alcohol can make you feel like I'm going to be left out I'm going to be isolated and as humans we like totally do not want that so 
we'll kind of do everything in our power to to not have that happen i think that's like one of the big reasons as well is that that people don't don't want to face it because they know that actually i think what they do is way up in their head like oh you know would i rather be suffering from this stuff or would i be like ostracized from my friendship group because mm. i'm not drinking and i think they decide actually you know this one's easier to deal with so i think that's kind of yeah. one of the things that happens yeah that's a really good point there's a couple of phrases that you keep going back to in the book One one's mindful drinking and the other one is sober curious um yeah which i've heard you talk about a bit now just doing my research upon you but like for our listeners what what's the difference first of all between mindful drinking and, and uh, sober curious what do they mean so this is a bit of a confusing one because <laughs> so mindful drinking is basically drinking mindfully so um the way that you would kind of see that is you know like identifying how the drink makes you feel before you plow on to the next one you know i used to always just you know be double parked have like two in my hand um yeah like identifying how it makes you feel being aware of like the circumstances that you're drinking in so you know, are you drinking because you're stressed, because you've had a rubbish week at work, or are you drinking because you're like celebrating? You know, are there there groups of friends that you feel triggered when you're with, like, or family members? I don't know that you know are always saying, "Why haven't you met someone yet?" or something like that. Like, are you just drinking because you're you're triggered? Or and and they also use like the halt technique in mindful drinking. So it's like, actually, are you just hungry? Are, you know, are you even just thirsty? Are you could you benefit from having like a nap or? It's just being more aware of your drinking and it's it's not binge drinking, it's not doing shots, it's not, you know, just drinking something for the sake of it. It's like, okay, like I really love, say, an Aperol spritz, I love the way it tastes, I love the way it smells, I'm going to have one or two and, you know, that's it. Like that would be drinking more mindfully. Which we all should be doing then, surely. A hundred percent, yeah. It might, any, any and everyone... I say could benefit from mindful drinking like I don't I don't believe everyone in the world needs to to be sober like best thing I ever did but I don't push it on people but I, I genuinely think everyone in the world could benefit from drinking a little bit more mindfully because I used to drink completely mindlessly it was go out yep whatever's in the glass is fine like I'm a lot more discerning about what I drink now that I actually don't drink which is funny like I will only drink things that I really like whereas before I was like yeah it's got alcohol in it cool I'll drink it so <laughs> That's kind of like drinking more mindfully. And then this term sober curious came in, which came from Ruby Warrington, who wrote the book of the same name. And it was kind of like a similar concept, really, to mindful drinking. I always say they are quite interchangeable. And she always says, you know, it's about thinking how it makes you feel. Uh, it's place the place that you give alcohol and the place that it has in our society. And just basically becoming more aware that it's, you know, not, uh, it's not a default state of sobriety. She always says, I think she's like 95% sober, but when the occasion, you know, warrants it, she will have a, a drink. But so sounds like the me. definition... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would so say you was... Ah. So you are sober curious, <laughs> but over the last few years, it's kind of been like whipped up into this like media frenzy. And now people think that sober curious means being curious about being full-time sober. But that's, that's what not I how... It was. Mm. Yeah, that's not how it was actually coined in the definition for it. So it is confusing because really sober curious and mindful drinking are kind of just one of the same. But now we've got this added definition that people think that sober curious is curious about full-time sobriety. Yeah. There was a line actually in the book that I highlighted, which I just have to mention when it comes to mindful drinking. You said, 
if you find moderation unobtainable, you shouldn't drink. And I was like, yeah. There's so many people that sprung to mind. And I'm trying, trying, trying not to be judgmental either because I had a conversation with my mum and, you know, there's a few family members that have unhealthy relationships, should we say, with drink. And she was like, you can't start preaching on this, you know, and everybody's got your whatever. And and, and I was like, oh, trigger, okay. Yeah. <laughs> got, to yeah. Be, got to be super, super careful. But I did completely agree with, with that. If you can't do it in moderation, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And there is a theory that like some people are natural moderators and some people are natural abstainers. So for for moderators, it's easier to moderate than it is to abstain. And for abstainers, it's easier to abstain than it is to moderate. And I think of it in quite a lot of aspects of my life that I am a natural abstainer. I find it easier to abstain. Even things like if you didn't put cookies in front of me, I wouldn't want them. But I find it very hard to moderate. So as soon as I have one, I'm like, I'm eating the entire pack. Like there's no in between. I can't just have one or two and then go, oh, I'm full now. I'm eating all those cookies. So I would find it easier to just say, I'm okay for cookies, thank you. That to me is easier. And some people can't understand that because for them, moderation is easier than abstaining. But for me, Mm. it's been so much easier. Because people say, like, oh, do you think that you probably could have like one or two glasses here and there? And I'm like, I just don't want to because for me, it's easier to go, it's completely off the table now. Like, that's it. Because I just find it easier than, you know, going, oh, I'll have one or two and then maybe I'll have another one. And then before, you know, I've had four or five. Like, Mm. I just know that it's easier for me to say, no, Mm. I'm good, thank you. Mm. We're coming up to the year anniversary since the book was published, the Sober Girl Society Handbook. Why drinking less means living more, which I love the tagline. So congrats, because this book has done incredibly well, right? And had some awesome reviews from celebs and whatnot uh, uh, too, and and journalists. But um, how long have you been sober for? So it'll be four years uh, in February. February the 11th, I'll be four years sober. Wow. And do you still get cravings now or is that long gone? I think it's long gone. I always say, look, even when my cravings were for alcohol, it wasn't for alcohol per se. It was for, like, the feeling of... I'm an overthinker. My mind is always active. I'm always anxious. For me, like, that total shutdown is what Mm. alcohol gave me, which was that I just stopped thinking. So that's Mm. kind of, like, the thing that I craved is, like, it sounds quite dark, but, like, total oblivion of, like, just shut down for a bit. So now I have to just, like, over the last four years, I've kind of worked to find other things that give me that feeling, whether it's, you know, like, high adrenaline activities where I'm only focused on that or taking dance classes where I'm fully absorbed in, like, routine and choreography that I can't possibly allow anything else into my brain or, you know, even napping or, like, having a bath. There's so many things that I've kind of learned over the years of, like, much better coping mechanisms and that's not to say it doesn't like flash across my mind every now and again but my brain works so quickly to go no that's not a good idea like and here's why and here's like why your life has been so much better over the last four years well I was going to ask you about like letting off steam because that's one of the main factors people like to definitely binge drink is because they want this air quote blowout and I was going to ask you, and you, but you've already touched upon like some of the things that you do to achieve that. I find the, the adrenaline one is making me smile. Um, yeah. <laughs> but 
you've also got now this amazing community that you've cultivated in the Sober Girls Society. So what are the other things that you've picked up along the way from some of um, some of the people in, in this group that have in terms of like getting that hit of not oblivion, but just release, isn't it? It's just a stress release. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people kind of talk about starting new hobbies or like have just started entire new careers or push themselves out of their comfort zone in like amazing ways or they've taken up hobbies that you know they used to love so like I used to love dancing and then when I stopped you know when I started drinking kind of like dancing fell by the wayside so I picked that up again so a lot of people like reconnect with those kind of things like one of the girls in our group has like got really into adult gymnastics she'd never done gymnastics in her life and she just like started going on like a Tuesday night in Watford like just started doing adult gymnastics and there's like all these videos of her like tumbling over like foam bricks and things like that and she absolutely loves it like I just know so many people who have like got into stuff or like go hiking or I think adrenaline is probably a good one because it's like it's pushing yourself out of your comfort zone but then I also know some people who have like got really into like sober raves and sober partying because actually what they found is that they really get the high from that and there's a lot of like morning rave like sober um companies like morning gloryville and daybreaker that run those kind of things as well so I know a lot of people that have actually gone really into nightlife and really kind of enjoyed that or like gone to festivals really got into like music gigs and things like that 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 people that people get it from you I think you just have to find your thing you know some people it's cross stitch and puzzling and some people it's going on a a mental sober rave like you just have to kind of work out what what's best for you yeah and waking up fresh as a daisy the next day I mean what could be better right Oh, such a high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, like when I came to the realisation, well, I just shouldn't drink, it was because my one day hangovers, I said goodbye to and they could last like a week of me just yeah. and I was like, you know what, for like an evening of drinking, it's to, to how it. bad I felt for the entire week. And it definitely does take its toll on your mental health. Definitely. On the subject of mental health again, I'm going to quote another line I loved in the book. Um, Good mental health is not about being happy 24-7, but about how you process your emotions. Which I thought, oh, you're such a great writer, Millie. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but like, we can't really process our shit, pardon the French, when we're squiffy, can we? But we, but yeah. we kind of... I think we really that's that's what we're intending is to like mask those emotions that we don't want to address. So what would you yeah. say to anybody who needs to hear this in terms of like why it is important to not put a band-aid over things that you're trying to not visit, yeah. you know, emotionally speaking. I think there's like loads of loads of good analogies. I think Clemmie Telford has one of the best ones where she says drinking is like control underwear like spanks that you can stuff it all in and it will like stay there and it will look fine but once you take them off it's like all gonna come spilling out and I think that's like such a good analogy that if you just keep suppressing your feelings with alcohol you keep pushing them down you keep squashing them into the control underwear they are gonna come out at some point and when they do it's gonna be an absolute tidal wave the best thing to do is process them as they happen and then you can move on from them you can box them up and you can put them away whereas if you just keep pushing things
things off and pushing things off, it's all going to culminate and it's all going to come out. And it's probably going to come out in you drunk at 4am, absolutely hysterical in a kebab shop. Like that's that's the reality of it is why you see so many people drunk crying because they use booze to mask how they're really feeling. And then it just all comes out in one go. Like you can't, you can't get rid of emotion with booze. You are only delaying having to deal with it. And it's it's not healthy it's not the way to do it so like for me I say do anything now like dance it out cry scream into a pillow like just fully embrace that feeling process it and then once you've kind of dealt with it that won't be an issue again it won't arise again you will deal with it in a really healthy way Mm. and that's it you can move on from it but I think so many of us and I, I was completely guilty of this just pushed emotions down pushed emotions down and it just culminated in them all coming out I mean basically having a breakdown so I think Mm. I think it's just the best thing that you can do is to process them as you go because the next day as well then you're rewarded with even more emotions and they're not necessarily nice ones you know shame regret fear panic yeah mortification you know all, all, all of the stuff I mean it's not usually like very joyful ones after after yeah a, a, a night binging uh, on the booze and I thought it was so brilliant that you included blackouts in regards to mental health and being detrimental for our mental health and it's it's dead on and it's like you know it's those lost hours a could be you know physically very harmful to us but b the mental harm that we're doing to ourselves is is real bad yeah, and I, I kind of, it's only retrospectively that I've really, really thought about it in that I, I don't know, at the time I'd kind of be like, oh, I couldn't remember this, and, and but I didn't realise how much of an effect those missing time periods were having on my mental health of not being able to remember stuff, and like, even now I've, I've like gone into bars and I've been like, I think I've been here. And like, <laughs> it's only then that I kind of realize actually how scary yeah. they can be and how we just don't acknowledge them because we just see it as part of drinking of like, oh, I forgot what I did last night. And it's, it's not normal. It shouldn't be normal. And I think mm. one of the fascinating things that I always say to people, which is the one that they kind of engage with when I talk to them about it is that you don't you don't forget those memories it's not you made the memories and then you forget them the way alcohol affects your your brain is that you literally don't transfer those memories from your short-term memories to those long-term memories so when you're like I'm trying to remember what happened chances are you will not be able to because you didn't make the memories in the first place because that's the way that alcohol has stopped your brain processing your memories and people are like oh wow that's quite fascinating and I'm like isn't it but like mm-hmm. no one's taught it no one's told about this like when I learned about alcohol in school no one ever no one ever said these things to me like mm-hmm. it, and I it was only once I started really researching blackouts and I read some absolute horror stories like I won't say them on here but if you google them of like horrific things that people had done in blackouts and like didn't remember it or like yeah and and they had to go through a court of like oh did you know did they really do this because they were in a blackout or like no memory of things and just yeah like horror stories and that kind of like put me off completely I was like no this is like too much for me it's real bad and I used to experience blackouts as well and then you're trying to like piece what was the last memory I have and like I've done it like you have in which I know from reading the book is like you woke up and you you're like where am I or who's next to me or how did I get home? Yeah. Like, wait, I've not got my purse. How did I get home? And, like, if you really think about it, those feelings are very, very unsettling, which leads me on to consent in sex, which, again, mm. really, really appreciated that you touched upon within the book. 
that is such a grey area as well because if you do wake up next to somebody and it's you've blacked out and can't remember and you're like, I don't even know if I did have sex with this person or not. But then was it consensual because it was like you call a drunk Millie, my alter ego was yeah. Gladys. It wasn't yeah. me doing it, it was Gladys. To the point of work used to say, is Gabby coming out tonight or is it Gladys? Yeah. Yeah. But Gladys is locked well and truly under lock That's and key good. now. Yeah. <laughs> Gladys hasn't reared her ugly head in many, many years. But um but yeah, I just I really appreciated that you you'd brought that up and you it kind of hit home and I thought that was an important message for, for anybody reading the book as well about sex, consent and drinking. Mm. It is a it's a really tricky topic because the minute you kind of bring alcohol into the conversation you know, people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to acknowledge it as a, a factor. But the reality is, like, it kind of is. And there isn't any education around things like blackouts. And for me, you know, like, I used to wake up sometimes and I would be like, I honestly couldn't tell you if I consented. I could have. Mm. Because what people don't realise that in a blackout, you could be walking, talking normally. Mm. You could be saying yes. and But you just can't remember. And that, for me, caused, like, a lot of... It only happened, like, a few times, but caused so much, like, shame and anxiety. Because I, I, I couldn't say for sure and I didn't know. And I didn't know, like, do, is this a thing? Like, can I say something? Like... Uh, could, were they equally as drunk? Did they not remember? And it's it's such a tricky area. But because we're so kind of worried about any kind of mention of victim blaming or things like that, we just decide not to address it. And, you know, the, the bottom line is it doesn't matter how, how drunk someone is, you should never take advantage of them. It's never their fault categorically. But because we just avoid talking about alcohol, there's this whole grey area that that we don't have any education around like and, and women aren't educated about it men aren't educated about it you know men don't know that actually a woman could be saying yes but she could be in a blackout she could be horrendously drunk and she might not remember saying yes in the morning so like there are these kind of conversations that that we kind of avoid and it is a really tricky subject. It is a hard one to talk about, but I also didn't want to leave it out of the book because it was such a big part of my story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another sort of cutesy term that's used, how alcohol alters our perception of, of people is like beer goggles. Mm, and it's yeah. like, were the beer goggles on when you, again, air quoting, pulled or scored or, what you know, whatever. Yeah. And it, yeah, like, so it's, it is really difficult to navigate and, um, and you know, hats off to you for for approaching it in the book on the flip side of that and I think for many people who do want to stop drinking this is one of the big factors as to what holds them back is sober dating and sober sex and again yeah you talk lots about this which was brilliant and this is where some of the aha moments came for me such as you know initially first sexual experiences often revolve around alcohol and therefore you associate getting a bit tipsy with having sex. So yeah, just in your own words, Millie, in terms of like, let's take dating first, like sober, I mean, dating is scary anyway. And then there's the whole, again, air quote, Dutch courage. That's the kind of like traditional date environment is to go for a drink. Um, so what's your experience of sober dating been like? Yeah, so I was last single about a year into my sobriety. I think I was about 11 months sober when I decided I was going to date again. And it was such an interesting experience because I think firstly, I thought everyone thought I was going to be a complete weirdo. And actually, 
I would say I only got about five percent of people who like weren't okay with the fact that I was a non-drinker 95 percent of people actually reacted really positively and you know I think in a way and I say this in the book I think they were quite impressed and like oh she's confident because she's gonna come on a date and not drink like I think it actually turned out to be an attractive quality which when mm-hmm. I decided to date I thought it would always go against me and actually I started realizing that it was starting to go for me which I think was the most surprising thing and then I think I just I just realized like all the dates I'd been on when I was drinking I would go into it I would drink so much I'd be like they're the one like full beer goggles on like ignoring any red flags just like making us super compatible in my head like probably didn't even talk about much deep stuff like probably just talked about what we liked on Netflix and I was like yeah great they're the one and then I'd meet them a couple of dates later and be like oh then they're not the one what was I thinking like I was just so drunk and I think like that has been the best thing about dating is that when I go on a date with someone I just know with absolute certainty I would say within like the first 10-15 minutes if like it's going to be a thing because when you're like super clear-headed I don't know I just feel like you're able to like you can notice if there is like authentic chemistry you can feel that you know the elusive spark whereas I felt when I was when I was drunk you know the spark would happen with everyone so I I think it's a it's a much more efficient way to date I think as well because you just you kind of know you don't waste all that time like the first three or four dates are like really booze heavy and you're just having a laugh like you kind of get into it quite quickly so I kind of noticed that things would like things will be more intense from the start I think because you just kind of lay all your cards on the table and I think naturally as well people will ask you if you don't drink like oh why don't you drink you might get into that story and kind of when you talk about things that are quite personal it kind of allows them to talk about things that are quite personal as well so I, f- I found like date two like we were just like, spilling our deepest darkest secrets which you know you would think that that would be alcohol but yeah it wasn't so it sounds like if you connect with somebody you get over the the awkwardness and the you know because it's the the awkwardness and the nerves of meeting somebody new that's like a potential romantic partner is again why we turn to alcohol we turn to alcohol for so many things don't we but like it's just it's another one of those like comforters um or, or for confidence so like are there any sober tips in that respect of like, do we just have to get over it? <laughs> I think ultimately that is the number one tip. And it is like absolutely anything sober. It's the more you do it, the easier it gets. Like I was never super confident on my first date, but I think like you come away from it and you go, oh, okay, that was fine. Like that was okay. I managed to hold a conversation, I asked a few nice questions and then you do it again and you do it again. And I always say with drinking I was really outsourcing my confidence so I didn't really build much internal confidence because I relied on alcohol so if I needed confidence I'd grab a drink and then I felt confident and then the next day that would disappear because I purely outsourced it whereas when I stopped drinking I started to build like real confidence within me that stayed me because I did a date and I would go that was all me that wasn't the booze that was all me and I did that and I was fine and I think you know I cracked a few jokes and I did all right. And then I would do the next day and I would feel more confident. And I just kept building up on that confidence so much so that by the end, I was like going into dates. I just didn't care. Like I was just really, and I'm not saying like, oh, I was, you know, arrogant about it or like, oh, I think I'm the best. But it was just like, if this goes great, great. If it doesn't, 
also fine. Like it doesn't it, it doesn't really matter if they like me or not because there'll be someone else who does. And it, it was just kind of more, yeah, like chilled indifference rather than confidence, I would say. But even like I would say just if all you do is that confident for like two hours, just say, look, tomorrow I can be a quivering wreck, but I'm just going to put on this, like fake it till you make it, confidence for like two hours. And I think that's like, I don't know, you kind of like settle into it really quickly of, oh, actually, yeah, like this fake confidence thing is, is quite good. And yeah. Yeah. What if like it's because I know a lot of dating now, it's you meet people online. <clears throat> That's kind of the, the sort of go, main go to, especially during these times. But like seeing somebody you like the look of again, that's where yeah. drink helps, doesn't it? Being building up the nerves to like approach somebody and, and strike a conversation again. Do we just have to get over it? <laughs> I think so. But I also kind of think like that is the world now is that that doesn't really happen as much like I think even if I was a drinker I probably wouldn't be going up to people in bars because it's just not the way it's done now I don't, I think I don't know if that's like a not not a drinking thing I think that's just a like I don't really get approached in bars anymore like people who are drinkers I think they just you know go home and swipe on the app so I don't think that's as much of an issue but again I think it is just a like you know you have to just throw yourself out there and and sometimes I think you know what if this is going to make me uncomfortable then that means I have to do it because then there's only going to be growth from that like uh, that's that's the way I think of it. if I suddenly think oh that's really uncomfortable I've like oh now I've got to do it because now I've got to like prove to myself that I can and I think just constantly like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone will really help you like grow in confidence and the same applies for the uh, the bedroom then as well yeah, yeah, I think so. This is a really interesting conversation because I think there's that famous Shakespeare quote, which is like alcohol, I think it provokes the desire but takes away the performance. And I think <laughs> it's a classic of like everyone does associate it with like, you know, feeling a bit flirty. But actually when it comes down to it, it's almost, excuse the pun, normally like an anticlimax <laughs> if you're too drunk because it mm. doesn't it doesn't go the way you want it to. And I think... I say in the book, I don't necessarily have like, you know, the, the one that stands that I used to when I was when I was drinking. It takes me a little while to feel comfortable with someone. But then when I feel comfortable with someone, it's great. Like it, it's you're not clouded. Your judgment's not clouded. It's not all like messy and a bit like awkward. Mm -hmm. But it does take me longer to kind of like grow that connection with people I think mm -hmm. what I really respect about you Millie is that the fact as well that you're not like preaching everybody should quit drinking like you do endorse mindful drinking you do endorse being sober curious which actually means sporadically having the odd drink from time to time it's not like you you know you're saying everybody stop drinking otherwise you know you're dead to me <laughs> kind <Yeah>. of thing <laughs> which I think is really cool and does that apply if people do want to join the Sober Girls Society is that the sort of the arms are open to people who also might have the odd drink yeah 100% we pitch ourselves as uh, open to sober and sober curious people but really the only kind of you know thing that we ask is that you don't drink for the event that you come to because that's you know like our core thing is running events for women who are thinking about changing their relationship with alcohol or have changed their relationship with alcohol 
Or we always say, like, just want to do something that doesn't revolve around drinking. Like, if mm. all your friends are really heavy drinkers and actually you just want to come to a brunch, meet some new friends and not drink, also fine. Like, you don't have to come in and we go, you know, how many days variety have you got? Like, it's not like that at all. It's right. just it's if you want like to do AA. something. <laughs> <clears throat> no, it's a, we're not a recovery program. Yeah. It's, that's never how it was pitched we are a community so we you know share our favorite non-alcoholic wines we talk about how you go on a sober date like it's not a recovery path you don't have to follow anything you don't have to have any milestones or certain days sober obviously like we love celebrating those things if you've got like a five-year sober anniversary or something like that but it is absolutely like not a requirement to join i just you know everyone's got their thing for me it was drinking for some people it's not i see all around me friends and family that don't have any issues with alcohol and I'm not saying that's perfect because obviously we know alcohol still has its drawbacks, but they were not like me in any way. And I've got friends who have got, you know, different vices instead. And and those things don't bother me. You know, things like gambling, it doesn't even cross my mind. But for some people, that's their thing. And and I can't understand their thing and they can't understand my thing. And that's cool. Mm. So I know that it, like, total abstinence isn't for everyone because they didn't have the relationship with alcohol that I had. So I'm all about the kind of harm reduction just encouraging people to be more mindful about their drinking so that they don't end up in the place that I was really and then if anybody listening is thinking yeah it's time to stop you maybe there's some home truths that they've heard during this interview and um I, again, I found it really useful in the book that it, it's not just Alcoholics Anonymous. There are many other things. Like, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a sober counsellor until I read your book. Yeah. So I guess I know what that is now because it says what it does in the tin kind of thing. But, yeah, you share loads of resources, which it doesn't have to be as daunting or as scary as going into AA, which sounds like I can imagine for anybody who is thinking about it that, that would be really like um, a big leap for them to take, but maybe there's some smaller ones that they could could do first. 100%. There's so many resources now. Like There's a whole corner of the internet dedicated to this kind of like mindful drinking, sober curious movements. There's like podcasts, there's courses that you can do, you know, like downloadable courses. You can pay like 40 quid at Club Soda and you can get like a 30-day mindful drinking course. There's things like One Year No Beer. There's, there's just so many resources that you could find something that would suit you and that wouldn't feel scary to wrap things up you i think you mentioned it before the halt technique what exactly is that like if, if that's a takeaway that you could offer to our listeners yeah so the halt technique is hungry angry lonely tired i have extended it in the book because i think there's other things to consider but it's basically asking yourself questions before you drink of Am I just doing this because I'm hungry? Okay, let me eat first, then I'll see how I feel. Am I doing this because, you know, I'm angry, so stressed? Is there something else I could be doing? Shall I take a bath first, then see how I feel? Lonely, is it because I've not spoke to anyone today? Am I feeling isolated? Do I need to reach out to a friend, make social connection? Tea, tired. Actually, am I just tired and groggy and that's causing me to drink? Shall I just have a nap instead? It's kind of like a toolkit of hit all those points first and I've added a few more in the book like I think boredom was a trigger for me as well so you know am I just bored what else could I do instead it's going through them all and then working out actually could I do something else that could help this situation before I drink and I think it's just a really like 
easy method to run through, like hit all those points first. Then if you do all those and you're like, no, actually, I do just want a drink, then, you know, if you want that drink, have it. But check that you're drinking because you actually want the drink and not because you're all of those things. Mm, And I liked as well, that's just made me think about another thing in the book that you said about getting to the root of why we're drinking. I would say that sort of plays into the whole technique as well. It's like, why am I drinking? That's maybe like zooming out a bit. But like, what's the root of why I'm drinking? Like, why do I why do I feel like I need to get blottoed? Yeah, and I think also with that, the the first answer is probably not the root root. So if you're like, oh, I drink to have fun, then okay. So you say why? So you say okay, because I really associate drinking with fun. Okay, well why? Oh, because like you know that's how I've been taught growing up. Okay, well why? And you can like really go down to the layers until you get like to a surface point where you're like, oh, okay, that's why I drink, and actually I don't need to drink for that reason. Yeah, I guess it could be like maybe you don't laugh enough, or like you, yeah. you know, you're not adventurous enough, and then there's yeah. other ways that you can bring that to the table that that don't yeah. involve booze. Millie, yeah. this has been such a great chat. I feel like I could keep talking oh, to you for another you. hour, but I'm really respectful <laughs> of everybody's time. <laughs> the best place to find you is on the gram, both on the Sober Girl Society Instagram page and you've got your own page as well. But I don't yes. know if that, that more for personal. Yeah, I post like, you know, pictures of my dog and holiday pictures. And I, I do post like non-alcoholic like drinks. And yeah, exactly. Sobriety related content, but it's not, it's not always sobriety related. Right. So I, I do a bit more like men healthy stuff there and and yeah well that's what we're all about um at my possible self uh yeah Yeah. cannot recommend enough the sober girl society handbook it's a really enjoyable read and i always like say that with a smile when it's like touching on subjects that aren't necessarily associated with enjoyment like (laughs) stopping drinking or you know reducing drinking but um i swear book number two millie a YA. <laughs> okay, I'll get I'll get back to you. It's on your that. homework. Yeah, I only take ten yeah. <laughs> percent. Okay, perfect. That's fine. Um, I'll work it out. My agent. Excellent. Is there anything else coming up that we should know about? Will we best find you via the gram? Yeah, I think best find via the gram, but also if you sign up to our mailing list, so the link is in the bio, then you'll be the first to hear about all kind of upcoming things, news, events, virtual events. So if you want to like make sure that you're updated, then the best thing to do is just sign up to the mailing list. It's it's free. You'll just be added. You'll get our monthly newsletter. And that also actually comes with, uh, I think it's about six pages of the book so that you can like get a feel for it, decide if you like it and then think about buying it. Nice. Perfect. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. What a wonderful conversation to put out at the start of the year, because I know know that this is a time when there's so much reflection going on, isn't there? So you definitely have given us some food for thought. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, isn't she great? Thanks again to Millie Gooch for a brilliant conversation around alcohol, sobriety, sex and self-love. I've been Gabby and that concludes another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you're not already following us on social media and you feel inclined to do so, we are at My Possible Self. Until the next one, take care of yourself and take care of your loved ones. Bye.